Welcome to The Blockchain Lawyer, a podcast on technology and law. Dennis Hilleman is an accomplished lawyer with over 13 years of experience and a passion for creating a better future through blockchain technology, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive innovations. All statements expressed in this podcast are the opinions of the host and his guests only and are in no way legal or financial advice. And now, here is your host, Dennis. Hi, everyone. This is Dennis speaking. Before we head into the interview, I want to recommend to you to join the Blockchain Lawyers Network. It's a social network running on money networks where lawyers, entrepreneurs, and blockchainers from all over the world connect and discuss blockchain and regulation. We discuss matters like blockchain and privacy or the regulation of cryptocurrencies. I'd love for you to join. It's totally free. If you want to join, go to www.blockchainlawyersnetwork.com. That's one word, blockchainlawyersnetwork.com. Or you can also reach the network via the blockchain.lawyer. So either www.blockchainlawyersnetwork.com or the blockchain.lawyer. Happy to see you there. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the new episode of The Blockchain Lawyer. My name is Dennis Silliman, and today I've got Olga Stepanova, a German lawyer, with me. I know Olga from the German Institute of Standardization. She's a fabulous lawyer working in the crypto and blockchain field, and she's especially working uh, on the matters of privacy. Hello, Olga. Thank you for coming on the show. Hello, Dennis. Uh Nice uh, to be once again in your podcast uh, today, the English podcast and not only the German one, which is also really recommendable for all those who are able to speak German. So, um, yeah, I'm very happy to be hosted today by you and um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today on privacy matters, uh, which are relevant in a blockchain ecosystem. Thank you, Olga. Yes, Olga already has already been on my German podcast, Recht im Ohr. And like I said on that podcast, now she's on the English podcast. So let's start. Olga, can you give us a little, back, a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you come, what are you doing? How did you come into blockchain and why do you like the technology? Yes, so uh, actually when I started working here at Wim Heller, uh, a lot of my colleagues were uh, really deep into cryptos. So um, they were into crypto taxation and also into banking law. So uh, uh, into all this regulatory frameworks from a banking perspective. And um, my aim or my um, uh, interest was all, always in a bit of different direction. So I was not too much into crypto in the way that um, um, I was uh, looking uh, how to um, sell or how to buy cryptos and how it is regulated from the buffing, for example. I was more or less into uh, the technology itself because I've seen that there is a lot of use cases behind or beside the cryptos. And this is where I started to get more and more acquainted with this technology. And um, uh, pretty soon I've seen uh, the first... Um, articles uh, or opinions of people working in this field who said that uh, there is an issue with data protection. 
And that is the starting point for me to start to investigate, to research on how this technology really works and um, what are the threats uh, for data protection or um, also the advantages for data protection. And step by step, uh, for about like two years, I think I'm uh, into this field. And um, uh, yes, I'm searching for solutions. And I think uh, one of the solutions is, which we found uh, while working with you together, Dennis, on the German uh, uh, standardization um, for this field. So um, yes, I'm really, really interested uh, how the future will be since we have more or less a solution for the privacy problem. Very good. We'll go into these, these details, but first of all, would you like to give the listeners an overview what issues are there what issues are there discussed between blockchain and gdpr sure so um there are lots of uh, different um issues i don't like to call them problems actually i like to call them issues um depending on which kind of blockchain technology you're using because uh, a lot of people just uh Uh, say, well, uh, this is the blockchain technology and they do not consider that there are several different uh, blockchains like the public blockchains, the permissioned blockchain or, uh, for example, um, the private blockchain. So depending on the technology, also the issues differ. So mostly one can say that uh, controllership is an issue for all of them and also the question who is who. So who are the actors in the concrete blockchain scenario, who is the controller, who is the processor, where is the joint control given? This is one point. Another point? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, we're listening. Okay, so another point is, uh, of course, uh, the right uh, to rectification and the right to erasure uh, or the right to deletion. Um, this is, uh, I think, the most prominent point. And Uh, last but not least, a uh, point where I'm yeah, deeply doing research on is the third country data transfer. So imagining we have got a public blockchain like the Bitcoin blockchain uh, where um, the miners uh, are spread over the, all over the world having copies of uh, the whole blockchain. And this also leads to the question whether we are facing a third country data transfer because uh, the GDPR has got special prerequisites for such a transfer and how we can um, handle this point, because actually we never can say where a user, a blockchain user, a blockchain miner appears or disappears. It can happen all over the world. So um, um, these are the three things I deem most important, but of course there are lots of other things Uh, but this is more or less uh, a question of the concrete blockchain scenario and uh, perhaps uh, not correct to um, to address this issue here because we are talking about the general issues which occur um, in the most blockchain scenarios. Thank you very much. Let us start with the first issue. And I like that you call it issue, not a problem. Um, I'll switch to that as to, to now. Let us talk about the first issue. What is the issue of controllership and processorship in an EDU GDPR scenario? 
Um, first of all, can you explain in general what it means to be a controller or processor under EU GDPR before we refer it to blockchain? Sure. Um, so um, one can say that the roles uh, in the GDPR are uh, determined by the GDPR. So that means that um, there are only a limited um, <laughs> limited roles. So whether you are controller or you are professor, or for example, a joint controllership is given. But at least uh, there, the point is that the GDPR, when it was uh, written, it didn't. It uh, doesn't have uh, in mind that another scenario like the blockchain scenario can be given. So all the regulations in the GDPR they are tailored for centralized solution and not for decentralized solution. So this is the yeah the main issue about um, GDPR and blockchain. So. Who is a controller? A controller is a, a natural or a legal person or an agency or other uh, public body, for example, who determines the purposes and means of the processing. So, for example, a company, you are working at the company and I'm working at the company and this company is the controller because this company determines why they are processing data uh, and how they are processing data. And of course, not everybody can do everything. So of course, we use um, so-called processors, so companies who are helping us to process personal data. For example, um, we use a hoster. So our website is hosted by a hoster. And this hoster, of course, processes personal data, for example, of website users who um, uh, try to get access to our website. So this is a processor for us. And um, it is pretty clear also your company uh, is also hosting the website somewhere and also makes use of a processor. So you're the controller because it's your data, obviously it's your website, but somebody helps you in processing this data. And now we have got this uh, very um, special um, setup with the blockchain. That means that in a decentralized field, everybody and none of them is controlling and determining the means and purposes. So that means you can't say, well, that's you, you are the controller because you are the one and you're the only one who is determining the means and purposes. No, this is obviously not the case. There are everybody who is somehow um, processing this data. So we can't say that there is a concrete a uh, legal or natural person who is in charge of this processing. And on and the on other the hand, we also uh, can't, can't say who's the processor because um, everybody is in a way uh, like, uh, well, helping or not helping, like um, who are the miners, either processors for um, somebody else. So you, you can see obviously that the text of the GDPR and the concrete roles given by the GDPR don't fit the decentralized um, system, which leads to the question how we want to handle this case. I see. Um, and I'm, of course, this is a very big issue, but can you just tell us why is it important who is the controller or processor? Um, we have listeners from all over the world 
we're not. Sh I'm not sure if everyone is actually in, in knowledge about these questions. Can you just enlighten us why it's important to know who is the controller or processor under G EU GDPR? Sure. Um, the point is that um, being processor or controller is not only the question who you are, but it is also uh, uh, the question which obligations you have got under the GDPR. So um, one can see that there are lots of um, duties to be fulfilled by the controller. It starts with the duty to have all the necessary documentation on the one hand, and of course, which is also important, you have as controller, you are liable for everything which is happening while you are processing personal data. So these are the two main questions um, uh, or the two main issues for being a controller. And uh, this is also the question actually where um, the data subject has to ask for right to access or right to rectification because everything is in a way like a pyramide. So there is one person uh, handling all the processes from above and everything goes in this direction. And here we don't have this person in a decentralized scenario. So who is liable in the Bitcoin blockchain or um, who needs to fulfill all the obligations towards the data subject in this blockchain scenario. So these are all questions which are raising because we just don't know how to handle this first uh, determination or definition of a controller and in the second step how to handle all the obligations related to being a controller. Okay, thank you very much. Um, at the beginning you underlined but it's Whenever you're facing such a question, it's very important to differ uh, to look at the different uh, blockchains. For example, let's start with a permission-based private blockchain. Do we have an issue with a question of who's controller and who's the processor here? Yes and no. Of course, all the blockchain scenarios are different, but in a closed permission blockchain, so this is easier because we can see, okay, we have got like the users, uh, we have got the validators, and there we can address who is um, fulfilling which tasks, which are more or less um, similar to those um, being uh, in the GDPR. So there we can say, okay, we have got, for example, controllers, and we also have got the gatekeeper, for example, who may be a processor. And this is easier in this uh, scenario because we have got um, uh, actors who fulfill special purposes. Uh, and that is why it makes us easier also to address all the liabilities and uh, uh, the duties. Okay, I understand. Okay, so there we can maybe handle the issue. And then you, of course, talked about the permissionless public blockchains and you already named the Bitcoin blockchain. So what do we do where? Well, this is a pretty good question. and <laughs> actually, I'm known for asking kind of pretty good questions. I'm known for that. <laughs> well, um, from a lawyer's perspective, I would say as long as no data protection authority is signing, <laughs> we don't have a problem. <laughs> that's, that's a good approach. 
but actually from my point of view this is pretty hard to say that we can get it somehow compliant for two reasons one of the reasons is well um we have got the immutability of the blockchain so in case you would like to change something yeah we like uh, to implement gdpr in some way this would definitely mean that we need to change the bitcoin blockchain and this would be really interesting how we would like to do that on the one hand and on the other hand our approaches um when i come back uh, for example to the um dean spec we have uh, written together this um standard for processing in a more or less compliant way in the blockchain scenario um we can't apply it um for this kind of blockchain perhaps so there are solutions but the point is it is and this is also one of the things that gdpr is asking us for it's privacy by design so it means before we are launching a blockchain application before we are uh, coding a blockchain we also should take into account what kind of data shall be processed on this blockchain and how do we want to safeguard that we are obeying all the rules and now we have got a product which is running for several years with a lot of information on that uh, is the bitcoin blockchain and from my point of view we can't get it compliant from the way how the block uh, how the gdpr is interpreted now the only thing and i don't think that this will ever happen is that the legislator says like the gdpr is not applicable for the bitcoin blockchain for example but i don't think that this is happening because many people also say well bitcoin this is kind of an anonymized um, uh, financial instrument or um, i don't know um, possibility to pay something or to get money or to receive it whatever this is not the case this is pseudonymized data and that is why the gdpr is definitely applicable and um, this should be kind of a legislator's will to exclude gdp blockchain public blockchain from the gdpr but i i i don't think this will ever happen so um we keep the fingers crossed that the dpas uh, the data pr protection authorities won't uh, have a too close look on that and we'll just say okay um this happens and that's fine and um we don't have a legislator's um exemption but we just uh, well we d we just don't care about it so this is how i think this will be solved but for the new applications and for any kind of new use, ca use cases i don't think that um they won't um have a look on that and say well um this is happening and we don't uh, care about it this is what i don't well, I, think thank you so much um of course i can i could imagine that some of the listeners are now a little worried that the bitcoins they purchased in europe uh might be invalid because to eu gdpr reasons but i think we should underline one thing um when you're in europe and you use for example, an exchange like Binance Jersey or whatever to buy Bitcoin, the gate opener to um, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin blockchain, the, the on-ramp 
um, mechanism. Um, it's it has to be fully EOGDPR compliant, uh, yes, right? Yes. You, you agree, right? Yes. Yes. So yeah, probably yeah, that is maybe the issue where the um, supervisory authorities will look at at the exchanges at the on-ramps mechanisms. But I understand, of course, also the point that. The blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain, as such, as an example for a permissionless public blockchain, really, really puts up some challenges. One thing that maybe interests some of the listeners: can you can you explain why Bitcoin is only pseudonymized and not anonymized? Well, um, despite uh, the prejudice or the false information that it is anonymized, it is not because you need at least um, to register on a as you said, like, for example, Binance or another trading platform you need to register. So one can see um, that it was, uh, uh, well, your public key, it was your wallet that is you who has been registered. And at least in case some fraudulent action happened or whatever, um, the prosecutor has got a claim uh, towards uh, this, um, towards Binance or any kind of other trading platform. Uh, so um, they need to share your data. So definitely it is only in a way encrypted that, or not encrypted, it is pseudonymized in a way that um, behind, uh, you only have got the public key, for example, and nobody can see from an obvious point of view that it's Dennis or it's Olga, but you can find it out. And as long as the re-identification is possible, the data is definitely pseudonymized and it is not anonymized, and that's why um, the GDPR is applicable, because for anonymized data, the GDPR is not applicable, obviously because the GDPR um, wants to uh, save uh, the privacy of a person, and when you can't even identify who the person is, there is no need to save something. So... That's why um, anonymized data is out of the scope of the GDPR and pseudonymized data is in the scope of GDPR. So for all of those who uh, might think, but I even don't think that your listeners think that it is anonymized, uh, it is not. Thank you very much. Okay, so we see there's a challenge and so far there's no ideal solution for that. Um, of course, Olga and me worked on a standard at the German Institute for Standardization, and um, we might have figured out some solutions. Um, did we? Uh, would you like to say? I mean, we will. It's not yet published. It's not yet officially published, so we need to keep it a little secret. But maybe you can say <laughs> two or three sentences about it, Olga, if you like. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, I would like to say that I really enjoyed the cooperation of techies and lawyers because I think yeah, me too. That was that was really cool. Thank you for no. Thank you for mentioning that. Go on, please. Yes. So I think this is the step in the right direction because um, well, the techies have got a different understanding, for example, of erasure, and that's why. Um, the right to uh, erasure or rectification is a bit different in their uh, way of understanding. This is one point, and the, the lawyers, well, um, they can't claim that they know, know everything and everywhere because uh, most of the people, except those who worked on the standard, 
um, or most of lawyers are not really deep into technical questions. So I thought that it was a really good approach to bring um, both um, groups together to start working because we had really interesting um, conversation, especially on the question uh, what is deleted uh, <laughs> and what is not deleted, for example. And um, one of uh, the solutions I personally like um, is uh, the question of um, uh, hashing and how to do it in a way that the data is deemed not pseudonymized but anonymized in a way. And here I, we can see that in Europe uh, um, we have got some yes, uh, some guidelines of the CNIL of the French Data Protection Authority and also one a really important paper of the Spanish uh, Data Protection Authority published together with the European Data Protection Officer. And this is uh, what I really, really liked. So it was a really great day when it was published because um, they have got kind of a bypass solution in a way. So um, they um, use salt and pepper. I will explain, uh, wait a second, what's that in order to get uh, data in a way not accessible that they are deemed deleted. So what does this mean? Um, this paper is actually dealing with the question of um, how to use the hashing function for um, pseudonymization. <clears throat> for example, the hashing function, uh, which gives you 200, uh, the SHA-256, uh, yes. Um, and in a way, it gives you the the hash, this is the outcome, and this hash may be supplemented by um, a random, um, well, uh, random numbers. This is the so-called salt, for example. And that, in the end, the hash looks different than before. So when we are hashing, for example, your name, Dennis Silliman, and we put in the end like three, four, five, six, seven, the hash will be different than your name solely. And by using this technique, also by using a so-called pepper, we um, kind of, um, um, we, 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 uh, we change the hash. And when we delete this specially added salt or pepper, then we receive the a hash, which we can't, re-identify anymore because uh, something is missing. And this is a really, um, uh, yes, uh, a really um, uh, not a straightforward solution, but in a way it is helping because we, um, we, we have what the GDPR is asking us for. We have the non-re-identification and that is the same actually as erasing from like, um, I don't know, like just erasing, like just deleting. So in so case in you case can't see who is behind, this is the same like it is deleted. So uh, this is a legal question on the one hand, and of course on a technical one, and this is a solution which is possible, but definitely not applicable for all and every blockchain ecosystem. But this is one point. And another point I also like is the so-called zero knowledge proof. That means that um, you are asking the blockchain a question and it doesn't give you the concrete um, uh, the concrete um, information, the concrete data, but it is giving you a, an, an answer. 
So for example, somebody wants to purchase alcohol and in Germany, you need to be over 18 for that. And uh, you want to do it, uh, I don't know, whatever uh, on the internet. And uh, the website is asking, uh, well, are you over 18 or under 18? And um, they don't say how old are you, you are. They don't say that you are 40 or 35 or 30. They just say over 18 or under 18. And this is also a really interesting thing and uh, a good solution for achieving data mi minimization because it will, uh, this solution only gives you the data which is, or the information which is necessary for you and no additional information because obviously when you want to buy alcohol, it doesn't matter whether you are 40 or 35 as long as you are over 18. So just like two things I really like, um, which we were working on, but yes, there are lots of other things um, and hopefully you can read them soon when the Dean standard will be published. I will absolutely inform the listeners about it and there probably will be another podcast episode then with uh, Christian Wirth, who was working, who was the initiator of the whole Dean standard with Michael Collane, who was already on this podcast. And thank you very much, Olga. That was there was very good summary of very good solutions uh, for tackling EOGDPR issues and blockchain in general. But we have other issues that you already started at the beginning. The second uh, subject of the day is the right to rectification of the right to erasure and blockchain. Can you, first of all, tell us a little about what does it mean, the right to rectification, the right to uh, erasure in a general GDPR context? Well, um, the GDPR has got the focus that uh, data can't be processed for all and every uh, time. That means that um, after uh, the legal basis is not applicable anymore and the purpose for the processing someday is, uh, is not current anymore, you need to stop processing personal data. Just to give you an example, um, today um, somebody is buying something at um, any kind of online platform. He or she receives the purchased goods and the platform needs to keep uh, this data for the payment for 10 years because this is written in the German uh, taxation um, legislation. So after these 10 years, they need to destroy the invoice and all data related to this person. Of course, there are also a bit of different things uh, to take into account, but however, this is the general idea. We have got um, the storage limitation, so someday you need to delete this data. And um, who needs to do that? Uh, this needs to be done by the controller. So we see, okay, first issue, who is the controller, who is the one? Um, being um, obliged to, um, to 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 comply with this right to erasure, and um, th that is one question. The other question is the immutability, the general immutability of the blockchain, which means that the blockchain can't be um, I don't know can't be switched in a way, can't be amended, can't be altered in a way. And here we have got a kind of a clash of cultures. So on the one hand, someone who, is, who, who needs to be the controller has to comply with the right to the erasure. And on the other hand, we have got immutability. 
So um, this is a really, really big threat because uh, it is obviously that uh, we have got a problem in here. And, and um, um, for, for uh, complying with the right to erasure, right to rectification, we have built some kind of solutions, as I mentioned uh, uh, previously, for example, uh, by using salt and pepper while hashing, or uh, for example, somehow um, with the zero knowledge proof in case uh, we don't have any kind of plain data. And this is, this is really technological when we go deep inside, but this is actually the question. And um, we can't solve it only on a legal way, but saying, well, the GDPR is not applicable for blockchain scenarios. Well, everybody would start a blockchain scenario in order to circumvent <laughs> the, the obligations yeah. under the GDPR. Yeah. And, and on the uh, other hand, uh, we need to take the privacy into account. And of course, when we are um, applying a blockchain solutions for whatever use cases, we also want to um, be customer friendly and uh, to um, rectify, rectify data or to erase data when the obligation to do so is given. So um, these are the two things. And... Um, as I mentioned before, um, there are solutions depending on the concrete blockchain scenario. Yeah, thank you very much. And of course, this was tackled in the German standard that we worked on as well, right? Yes, yeah, sure. And uh, I only want to uh, emphasize that there is not the one solution. This is really important. There are different solutions depending on what kind of use case you are faced with. But in general, there are a few things which are really recommendable for everyone who has got ever in mind of uh, setting up a blockchain. We have got um, the principle of privacy by design, which means, first of all, think about privacy before doing something. So first of all, check whether you need to have uh, personal data at all, because in case no personal data is um, involved, uh, the GDPR is not applicable. So perhaps there are kind of solutions where you just don't need all these questions. For example, in case you want to track, um, you want to do tracking in the maritime uh, industry, you want to know where the goods uh, are, which are delivered from whatever, from China to Hamburg, for example, there perhaps you even don't need to have personal data, just as giving a kind of an example. And of course, there are, there are use cases where you definitely need, like, for example, I was working on a case um, recently uh, where I was uh, um, providing legal advice uh, to a university in Germany, uh, which wanted to um, have all the certificates, uh, degrees, master degrees, whatever, on the blockchain. And there, of course, you can't, uh, you can't, uh, uh, you, you need to have personal data, but you can ask yourself, do I need to have plain personal data on the blockchain? What kind of blockchain I'm building? Is it a public blockchain I'm building? Is it a permission blockchain I'm building? And who are the actors in the concrete scenario? So there is a really, really uh, great planning process before starting to code something. And I really want to emphasize the point that there are solutions, but it is really important to take care about uh, the planning 
planning beforehand how you want to treat personal data in this uh, scenario. That's a very good solution, very good hint for every, any listener working on the blockchain like to plan very well. Let's tackle the third issue, the transfer to third countries. You gave a very interesting and uh, presentation at an event in November that was organized by Jörn Erbgut, and which I attended as well. And you gave an, a, a very good presentation on transfer to third countries. First of all, can you tell us what's the general approach of GDPR when it comes to transfer of data to third countries that are not subject to GDPR? Well, uh, the general approach is not to tackle this really... ...to answer questions. So, um, there was a, a brilliant uh, uh, court decision. I think it was in 2003, the so-called Lindquist decision. And um, as you see, well, 2003, so it was uh, under the old law and not under the GDPR. And since the GDPR did not provide us any kind of special or or, or different rules on that, uh, we just assume that uh, this former decision is still in force for all the third country transfers. So what happened uh, in this case, there was a, uh, a Swedish person who uploaded data uh, on a European um, uh, server for uh, the website which was hosted on this European server. And the question was whether a third, this constituted a third country data transfer. Because in case uh, it would be the case, uh, this person violated uh, the relevant uh, data protection rules because this uh, third country data transfer was not safeguarded under the mechanisms uh, provided by the relevant uh, data protection law. So um, in the end, uh, the court said, well, it is not uh, sufficient to um, upload something in the, on the internet. You need to, to have the intent that it is uh, going to be um, assessed somewhere in the third country. So here it was a, uh, a website uh, of a church uh, and uh, there was some kind of data um, uh, with regards to um, people who worked uh, for this church being uploaded um, on this website. And the court said, well, there is no real intent that it will be um, accessed somewhere abroad out uh, of the borders of the European Union. So um, that means that um, uh, taking this decision into account, we need to ask how this may apply for the blockchain scenario. So in case we have got a blockchain which is public, like the Bitcoin blockchain, we definitely can say, well, there is a real intent that it will be, um, um, it can be accessed worldwide, depending on where the person uh, is situated or where somebody wants to start uh, mining, for example. Yeah. So um, it can be China, it can be Japan, it can be Canada, it can be USA, whatever and you have no real influence where the person will try to access it. So just to give you um, another example, uh, in case uh, you and me would like to offer, um, I don't know, to offer kind of a guide services in Germany for Chinese persons, for Chinese tourists, 
and we would like we want we, we would um, uh, upload our photos on this website and use a Chinese top level domain so people from China directly can access this website and we would also um, provide all the information on this website in a Chinese language there we really can say well this is an intent of ours to um, provide this website to Chinese citizens, people being situated in China just because the website is in Chinese language, the top level domain is Chinese, and it is clearly that we want to, um, I don't know, market our services in China so that people from China come as tourists to Germany and ask us for our services. So um, this was not the case in this Lindquist decision, but uh, Again, applying this to the blockchain scenario of a public blockchain, we can say that in the end, applying consequently this Lindquist decision, we would have a, a third country data transfer to all the countries in the world where there is internet, uh, and that's why there is a possibility to access this public blockchain. And of course, we need to take... Um, into account how to um, solve this issue, uh, for example, by, I don't know, um, by, by not having personal data, for example, so we are out of the scope of the GDPR, or by having a permission blockchain and by limiting access, for example, out of the European Union or countries which were deemed adequate, uh, so we don't need to have a special safeguarding mechanisms like European standard contractual clauses, um, or binding corporate rules. So there are lots of questions, and I can't uh, say that there is a general solution, but one can see that um, um, I think even we, we can dig any, every and any article of the GDPR and we will find a problem related to blockchain just because this legal framework, which I really adore, by the way, um, was not written by having blockchain or other DLT technology in mind. Thank you so much. Um, that was a very good summary. Like me, you attended the roundtable uh, of a German government on G EU GDPR and blockchain. I, may, I already made an episode about it, but can you tell us what was your impression of the roundtable and its outcome? Well, first of all, my impression is it is great that there was a round table. Because I think that um, uh, on the one hand, it is pretty cool that uh, you, me, and a few other uh, people from the techie or uh, the lawyers um, um, are, are into, this, uh, into this topic and are trying to uh, build solutions for it. Um, however, uh, it is hard for us to do it on our own because we are not a governmental body <laughs> so far. <laughs> so um, <laughs> and it, it is hard for us and it is quite good that there are um, uh, governmental bodies who have uh, this issue in mind and who see the potential uh, of the blockchain technology on the one hand and also the issues of the blockchain technology. So all in all, I'm happy about this first step towards uh, really compliant solutions. Um, my, my point is perhaps that um, 
we need to raise the awareness on the one hand and also the knowledge on the other hand. Because I see that there is a pretty huge gap between people who are into this topic on the one hand and the governmental bodies. Because on the one hand, um, so many hands, uh, um, okay. So, <laughs> all good, um, all good. Um, so they say, well, uh, we want, uh, first of all, uh, to uh, tackle the GDPR compliance uh, topic uh, itself, because a lot of uh, companies who are uh, who who don't use blockchain technology are not compliant themselves. So this is uh, something, a, a general question. And on the other hand, I think there is a lack of knowledge and also a lack of uh, knowledge about possibilities uh, if, for blockchain applications. So um, what I really like is uh, the statement uh, of the representative of Bitcom um, um, who said, well, um, there are lots of, according to our surveys uh, or questionnaires, a lot of um, companies who are interested in blockchain solutions and even uh, think about implementing them However, uh, they are uh, afraid of, uh, well, the point that there is no regulatory framework itself. So there are a lot of other different questions, not only data protection questions when it comes to blockchain technology. And uh, there is nothing so far being presented by the legislator, data protection authorities or any kind of other um, governmental authorities. And that's why they're a bit reluctant to use um, this technology. And this is what I say, well, uh, we have got lots of companies who would like to use it. And of course, this will make a lot of processes more efficient. And on the other hand, we have got people like you and me and others who are willing to provide kind of a regulatory framework. So I think in order to bring both of them together under the rooftop of the ministry uh, of um, economics or whatever uh, governmental body would be a great idea and also a great step towards a kind of a regulatory framework and a compliance solution for all of these companies. So I think we're um, going in the right direction, but I also think that it will take time um, to, um, to, to, yes, to discuss all and everything to achieve a basic understanding on what's going on and also um, the chances of blockchain technology. And another thing is uh, what I see is um, that well, Spain or France are kind of, a, yeah, they're more into this topic. And I would wish and I think this needs to be the claim or the ambition of uh, Germany to be the leader in uh, creating a regulatory framework in creating business opportunities for blockchain application and blockchain use cases because um, I think there are lots of people who are into this topic especially in Berlin and it would be very 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 nice uh, to um, establish uh, a kind of a compliance structure in which will lead to the development of great solutions and of course which will lead to kind of economic growth in this branch thank you very much i think that are perfect last words uh, to closing this great episode with you olga how can 
people reach out to you if they want to, if they want to have a blockchain project and need counsel on privacy or any other matter concerning privacy even if it's not blockchain how can we reach out to you well in general um, my data is publicly accessible <laughs> so that so means that, means that you can uh, write an email or uh, drop me a line on linkedin so um yes this is actually i think the uh, most the, the simple solution or um, I don't know um, yeah ask Dennis <laughs> no I'm, I'm, I'm joking so I think it is the easiest to drop on me an email and uh, then I will be happy to answer your questions and also to be part of your really cool blockchain project because I think that there are really 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 great solutions which just need more confidence when it gets to compliance issues. Thank you so much. And also, Olga is, of course, one of the founding members of the Blockchain Lawyers Network, which you can read, uh, reach under the web address www.blockchainlawyersnetwork.com. So reach out to her as well on there. Thank you, Olga, for being on the podcast. And I, I'm sure we will keep in touch and we will also hopefully have you as a guest back on this podcast in the future. Thank you for your time and also for your questions. So um, I really hope that uh, the listeners will get a kind of a overview on the issues between blo blockchain and GDPR. And uh, yes, thank you once again, Dennis, that you are the one um, uh, heading, hosting and uh, creating this podcast because this is, in my opinion, also a way into um, bringing more um, making this uh, making this topic more prominent and more important to people. So thank you thank also you. For, for being with us. Thank you so much, Olga. So bye for now and until soon. Bye bye. If you want to learn more about Dennis, please visit his website, theblockchain.lawyer, or connect with him on LinkedIn or Twitter. Until next time, everyone. 